right. Good morning. Wife and I had a bet this morning how many people would actually show up. So I think I won, honey. Yeah. So all of you, first year here from California, welcome to Idaho. I guess I should be speaking to those online because that's probably probably where they are. But no, I know there's also been a lot of sickness going around in the church as well. So welcome. It is, and you know, it's been mentioned already a couple of times. I mean, some, one of the amazing things about snow, especially a snowfall like this that covers everything, is when you look out in the morning and just see that white. I mean, it's it's beautiful. It's an amazing example of God's creative. Uh, beauty. Also, an, another um, beautiful aspect of nature that my wife and I really enjoy is fall colors. Um, we've gone to the Northeast a couple of times just to go see the fall colors. We took a trip, I don't know, was it uh, 2018, 2017 to Boston? And um, when we were there, not only did we get a chance to look at the fall colors, but also did some sightseeing, some look in American history. And we found ourselves uh, visiting the USS Constitution. Um, and so we had a chance to go there. It's harbored there in Boston. And it turns out this ship has an amazing history. It was first built in 1797, uh, fought in several battles. During the War of 1812 is actually when it got its nickname. Because in that war, it was engaged with uh, several British warships. And there was a crew member on the Constitution as he was watching the British cannonballs bounce off of the hull of the ship. He said her, her sides are made of iron. And so it, she was called Old Ironsides, which is kind of ironic because the ship's hull was made of wood. Actually, it was southern live oak from an island, a small island outside of Georgia. And it, this oak is so hard that, that actually cannonballs fired from a cannon, even at close range were bouncing off of the hull or would only embed in it a short distance. And these victories by old Ironsides served notice to the British Navy that she was no longer the most powerful naval force on the oceans because of the ship's armor. And in the same way, we too have a strong armor available to us. We too have an armor strong enough to fend off the cannonballs of the the enemy and we've been as we've entered this new year we've been talking about this spiritual war that we are in a war that none of us can avoid a war that all of us are engaged in and as we enter this war the spiritual war we've been focusing attention on the most extensive passage in the new testament on spiritual warfare it's written by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. And so I would ask if you could please turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 6 will be there again and again beginning in verse 10. And I would ask if you would please stand in honor of God's word as I read from verses 10 through 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day 
and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. Lord, thank You again for Your instruction from Your Word. Thank You again for revealing to us all that we need to know. All that we need to know to be forgiven. All that we need to know in how to walk in Christ. All that we need to know even to battle our enemy. And do it in the way that You have prescribed. So Lord, I do pray You would give us insight this morning. That Your Spirit would open our eyes to understand and to apply. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you. So in these verses, again, Paul describes our enemy in this war and also how to engage that enemy. Notice the command Paul repeats here. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Verse 13, take up the full armor of God. And so today we're going to turn our attention finally to that armor. We're going to talk about three things this morning, Lord willing. The need for the armor, the importance of the armor, and then the specifics about the armor. So let's first consider the need for the armor. And we've really been talking about that need from the very first uh, message on this a couple of weeks ago. And that need exists because of the enemy that we face. An enemy that Paul describes here in verses 11 and 12, none other than the devil and his demonic forces. And a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time looking at the devil, looking at how powerful and how dangerous our enemy is. Right? Satan was the mightiest among God's created angels, more powerful than any created being. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need sleep. He's more intelligent, more cunning, more resourceful than any human being who's ever lived. He's had thousands of years to study us. He's had thousands of years to hone his skills of attack, and he's gotten very good at it. And he's claimed many victories. But though our enemy is a formidable one, or formidable, I don't know, how do you say that? Formidable? That sounds more like scholarly. Um, Though he's a formidable enemy, we need to remember a few things about him. We first need to remember he's a defeated enemy. We looked at that last week in Hebrews 2.14, that at the cross, Christ's death on the cross rendered Satan powerless. He no longer has the power of death over us. 1 John 3.8 says that the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And Satan is called the God of this world, but let's remember that's a temporary title. For a time he's been allowed some influence and some authority, but he's lost this war. And secondly, we need to remember that though Satan is powerful, he's not all-powerful. Right? He's, he cannot do anything that he wants. He did not create the universe. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not all-wise. He is not infinite. And he's definitely not good. He's nothing like our God. In fact, Satan's power is a derived power. You realize this, right? He's a created being. It's not his own power. In fact, he cannot survive without God's sustaining power. We know this from Hebrews 1.3. It says Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ upholds all things. All things means all things. Colossians 1.17 says in Christ, all things hold together. And all means all. All animals, 
all plants, all people, all atoms, all energy, all, all spiritual beings, all demons, and even the devil himself cannot exist apart from God sustaining him. He has no innate power on his own. Again, Scripture is very clear that every living thing, every created thing, derives its power and is sustained by God. Even Satan needs God for life. Acts 17.25, Paul said this to the Athenians. He said, God gives to all life, breath, and all things. Think about that. No created being will ever exist on his or her own for eternity. Probably heard the expression, right? Only, well, that only three things are eternal, God, his word, and people. Actually, what's true is only two things are eternal, God and his word. People are only eternal because God sustains us. We have to remember that. Satan is not an eternal being in and of his own strength. Only it is because God will sustain him. And thirdly, we need to remember this about Satan. Not only is he a defeated enemy, not only is he not an all-powerful enemy, but also, too, Satan is subject to God's will. He is finite in his abilities, and even in the things he can do, he cannot, he's not always able to do them whenever he wants. Right? When, devil, when the devil had his sight set upon Job, right, he had to ask permission to do anything. Or when the demons, remember that uh, account when Jesus encountered the man with uh, many demons? They had to ask Jesus for permission to go into the pigs, even. They couldn't just leave and do what they wanted. Or Matthew 4 describes, uh, you know, the, the temptations of Christ by the devil, the three famous temptations in Matthew 4. And in the last temptation, Jesus said, get out of here, Satan. And he left. I'm reminded of Luke 22:31, where, Pete, where uh, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you. You remember that text? And there that word for demanded actually is a strong request. He had to ask permission. So Satan doesn't have the power or authority to do whatever he wants to do. He is subject to what God allows him to do. Uh, Martin Luther famously said, remember, the devil is God's devil. Now, if this is the case, if the devil is a defeated enemy, if he is subject to God's control, if he is not able to do whatever he wants to do, why then is he allowed to roam about and to deceive? Why is he still allowed to attack the saints? Well, it's important to remember Romans eight twenty nine, which says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 2 Corinthians 12, I think I mentioned this before, Paul described how there was a messenger from Satan who was sent to torment Paul. And Paul says there he prayed, I think three times, Lord, remove this from me. And God said no. And then Paul realized why. He says there in the text that, that this messenger from Satan is being used to humble Paul and to work in his character and to grow his faith. 1 Corinthians 5 tells of a man who was in unrepentant immorality and Paul says he needs to be put out of the church 
And he said to do that, to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And there Paul was saying, even Satan, even the attacks of Satan can be used to bring someone to repentance. God even used Satan to bring about Satan's own defeat at the cross. Remember how active he was at that time? Do you remember who he entered a certain man in order to betray Jesus? Right? And yet God used that betrayal. He used the, the Christ's enemies who put him on the cross to actually bring about Satan's own defeat. And by the way, our salvation. Brothers and sisters, at times God may allow the devil to tempt, to afflict, to bring trials, and to attack. But know this. God always intends even for His enemy and our enemy to use Him for good in our lives and for His glory. Now, I'm not saying Satan is good (laughs) at all. But God is even able to use His enemies in order to accomplish His works. He used Pharaoh. We just read about in Exodus. And we're going to see how God's going to use Pharaoh even for His purposes to accomplish His plan. God causes all things to work together for good. Even Satan and his demons and their activities. Now, while while Satan is a powerful enemy, he is a limited one. But brothers and sisters, he is still a dangerous one. Even when a lion is in a cage, I don't put my hand through the bars. So saints, we need God's armor. We need God's armor to defend against his attacks. And having seen that need of the armor because of the enemy, I want to also discuss, talk with you secondly about the importance of the armor. The importance of the armor. Look again at verse 10. Why do we need this armor? What is its importance? Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to what? Say with me. You'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That word stand firm is repeated here. Notice in verse 13, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore. It's interesting he mentions that here. The way the book of Ephesians is laid out, right? The first three chapters, Paul focuses attention on what God has done in Christ for our salvation. And following that in the first three chapters, he turns attention into how do we respond to what God has done in Christ in our salvation? And he structures those last three chapters with five walk commands to walk in unity in chapter four, verses one to 16, to walk in holiness in chapter four, 17 to 24, and then to walk in love. From 425 to 52, and then 53 to 58, walk in purity. And then finally, from 515 to 69, it is to walk in wisdom. But then what's interesting in this last section, this last instruction Paul gives, he doesn't say walk, he says stand. Stand. And it's a strong term, stand firm. And notice too in verse 13, he also uses the term resist comes from the same root word. Stand firm is histemi. To resist is antihistemi. It means to stand firm against. It's an even stronger form of the word. It reminds me of James 4, 7. Same word was used there. Resist. Stand firm against the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Resist. 
Stand firm against the devil, strong in faith. See this repetition over and over. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm against. As the onslaught comes, don't waver. Don't turn around. Don't retreat. Stand. Stand firm. As evil spirits try to hinder our walk with Christ, as the devil attempts to make the church ineffective, as demons bring about temptation and affliction and trials, we're not told to bind them, we're not told to command them, we're not told to interact with them, we're told to stand, stand firm. Hold your ground. How do we do that? Well, we're given the answer in the four commands that Paul gives in, chat, in verses 10 to 14. That first command in verse 10, be strengthened. Find your strength in Christ as you abide in Him. That's where the power is going to come. And then he says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may stand firm. Verse 13, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, and that first command to be strengthened is in the present tense, in the original. It has this idea of make it your habit to be strengthened. Abide in Christ continually. But then what's interesting, the next three commands, he uses a different tense. It's the aorist tense in Greek. And I bring this up, it's important to know this, because whenever an aorist tense is used in the form of a command, it has the idea of urgency. It has the idea of stressing, do it now, don't wait. Present tense commands have this idea of an ongoing habit that you need to form. Aorist commands in the Greek have the idea of an immediacy that's necessary. Do it now. And it makes sense, I think, doesn't it? We're not to have this attitude of like, you know, I'll put it off. I'm too busy right now. I don't want to think about these things. I have other things I need to focus attention on. But listen, giving the devil too little attention is just as dangerous as giving him too much attention. Uh, William Grinalds, a Puritan, he wrote a wonderful book on the armor of God. It's called The Christian in Complete Armor. He said this. The saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares to creep on a sleeping lion. The weakest temptation is strong enough to foil a Christian who is napping in security. And you may be sure, if you do let sleep overtake you, the devil will hear of it. For the thief rises when honest men go to bed. So he's right. We have to be on the alert. That's even why Peter said in Second Peter, be sober, be on the alert. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion. And so, brothers and sisters, Paul says here, stand firm, stand against, don't stand idle. We must stand firm now. We must resist now. Because when you don't, when you don't put on the armor to make yourself stand firm, you make yourself vulnerable. Without the armor of God, then, then our abilities to endure trials weaken. Without the armor of God, our, our protection against false teaching is lessened. Without the armor of God, our resolve to flee temptation dwindles. I can think of David right off the top of my head as one such example. Right, we know his story. We know his great sin that was committed as we read about in 2 Samuel 11. And there it's interesting at the beginning of the chapter, it mentions that rather than go out with his army to battle, he stayed home, right? And then, of course, 
there was opportunity for temptation. But you see, he didn't fall just because he set aside his physical armor and stayed home from battle. He fell because he set aside his spiritual armor. When temptation came, he was not protected. Now, I'm sure it would be an obvious point here to consider that uh, we need to put the armor on for our own protection. But do you realize you and I need to put the armor on for the protection of one another? There's an element of the armor of God that I think is important to understand, that there's a mutual aspect to this. I mean, think about it, right? The, the church is described as what in the Scriptures? The church is described as the bride of Christ. It's described in Ephesians 5 that way. It's described in Ephesians 2 as a building. But it's also described as a body. Right? Remember, one body. We are one body in Christ. And so what happens to one part of the body affects the rest of the body, doesn't it? We know this just even physically. Daryl mentioned shoveling snow and how he's got a, what do you call that, a, a hook in your step? or I don't know, that's kind of an old term. I'm, I'm too young to know that kind of thing. But, <laughs> but right, so, so even though you know shoulders are sore, it kind of affects the rest of your body. You know this, right? If you've busted a toe or something like that, it affects how you adjust to that. And just in the same way, when one part of the body of Christ is hurt, it has an effect on the rest of the body. Satan is looking for the weak points in this church to exploit. It's not like he stays out there. Jesus even exercised demons in the synagogue. Satan's not afraid to come into church. He's always on the attack, looking for weak points. Remember, one of his tactics is to sow discord among us. And if you're not prepared for his attack, you will not only suffer harm yourself, but also others in this body will suffer harm. We need to put the armor on to be prepared and also to help one another. Again, putting the armor on is not only important for you, it's not only important for others, it's also important for God himself. Because God has graciously provided this armor for us. God has given us all that we need in Christ. Even as Paul said in Philippians, right? I can do all things through, through Him who strengthens me. But to not put the armor on is to say, well, His resources are unneeded. They're not sufficient. William Grinnell also said this in his book, How could you fall when you were so well equipped to stand? Have you been eating the devil's treats when you have a key to God's bountiful cupboard? Are your father's provisions so meager that the devil's scraps sit well with you? You see, our sin does not only reflect upon us, it reflects upon our father. Because it tells the world God isn't enough. It tells the world that sin is a better delicacy. It tells the world that Jesus ultimately can't satisfy. That even God cannot help us live holy lives. That's the message we send. You know, when Nathan confronted David in that terrible time in David's life, do you remember what Nathan said to him? This was probably, I don't know, to me, among the most searing of, of statements that Nathan made. He said, you have given occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. So when we are defeated, 
because we did not put the armor on so that we could stand firm, we then become objects of God's shame rather than instruments that bring Him glory. And brothers and sisters, that alone should be reason enough for us to take this seriously. That alone should be reason enough, motivation enough for us to want to know how to put the armor on. That alone should be motivation enough to show us the importance of having on God's armor. And that brings us now, finally, to the specifics of the armor. Let's talk about the armor. We've seen the need for it. We've seen the importance of it. Let's consider now the, the specific pieces of armor that Paul mentions. But before doing that, I want us to take note. It's described as the armor of God. God's armor. It's armor that's provided by him. It's a divinely empowered by him. And it's only in God's armor that we can hold our ground. It's only in God's armor that we can resist, that we can stand firm. And as I mentioned last week, it's important then, before we can put on any of God's armor, we must have the God of armor on ourselves. Before we can trust in His armor, we need to trust in Him, right? Because again, there's only two sides to this war. There's those God and those who are His. There's Satan and those who are His. And God has provided the armor only for those who are His. God had provided the armor only to those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. God has provided the armor only for those who desire to turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ. Have you done that? Have you submitted to Jesus as Lord? Have you believed in your heart that God did raise Him from the dead? That He is the only means of salvation? That through the cross, He provided the only, the only punishment that God would be satisfied with. So that you and I would not have to suffer the punishment we deserve. God placed it on His Son at the cross. you believe that? Have you put your trust in Him alone? Have you confessed your sin to Him and asked for forgiveness? If so, God provides this armor for you to protect yourself in the attack because He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. But even though it's God's divinely empowered armor, you and I must still put it on. It doesn't just magically appear, right? That's why He commands us to put it on. He says twice, put on the full armor of God. And secondly, take up the full armor of God. We are commanded to do it because it is an action we need to take. These commands are not passive. It's not that we sit there and all of a sudden it just pops on us, right? I mean, that'd be like, imagine a Roman army there, right? They're laying out and the, they're, they're napping and all of a sudden the battle is hit and they just stand up and does the armor just jump onto their bodies? They have to put it on, right? In the same way, so do we. Now let's take a look at the specifics of the armor that we are to put on. We see them listed beginning in verse 14. Look there with me. Stand firm, therefore. How? Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times 
with all prayer and petition in the spirit. And to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, Paul using the armor as an illustration of this spiritual truth that we have uh, God's armor. You know, I, I was thinking about that. What, what may have prompted him to do this, to use this type of metaphor? And if you remember, what was Paul's circumstance when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians? Where was he? Right. He was chained to a Roman soldier in house arrest in in Rome. Right. So I wonder we don't know for sure, but I wonder, right, he's sitting there writing and he's kind of. Hmm. In fact, I have a picture here of what he might have seen here. Can we pull that slide up? I got some really fancy graphics here. Maybe we'll can show you. Wanted to try to get a visual idea of this armor that we're going to be talking about. So I found a cheesy picture here of some guy in sort. Of, this is a, not actual Roman armor that was found, but it's a, a good replica of it. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking perhaps Paul's looking over at this guy standing next to him, and as he wants to communicate these spiritual insights, he does so in the form of an illustration, using this armor. As that illustration, since we are in a spiritual battle, we need spiritual armor to fight, just like a soldier would need physical armor. And I also think Paul may have been influenced by the prophet Isaiah. Yeah, don't show that picture too long. People are starting to laugh. Um, But Isaiah talked in a couple of places in Isaiah. He mentions this idea of an armor. Uh, he mentions of the Messiah in Isaiah 11:5, the righteousness will be a belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Or Isaiah 59:17 says God put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And so here in Ephesians 6, I think Paul may have been drawing upon that example from Isaiah, but then also seeing that soldier there, he compares each piece of armor on the soldier to a particular spiritual truth, a particular principle that you and I need to understand as we engage the enemy in this spiritual war. And so he connects each piece of armor to a particular truth. And what is the first piece of armor that he mentions here? He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Or we might call it the, the girdle of truth. Not a women's girdle, all right? But that word having girded, it comes from a verb that means to, to bind, to hold fast, to girdle. And it's really this idea of binding a clothing around the soldier's loins or waist, right? Because they would often wear a tunic as they were there. But the, the tunic needed to be tightly bound. Otherwise, it would hang loosely around down to their knees, and that might become a problem when you're in battle. I see that like, like these football players today. they got stuff like hanging from their, from their uniforms, and they, it gets grabbed, and it hinders them. So the soldiers recognized they needed to wrap this loose clothing tightly around their waist, and so they would use this, this girdle, this belt, to do that. In fact, I have a fine, oh yeah, there it is, a fine picture there of this, a replica of that. So this girdle of truth is binding their loins with truth. We prepare ourselves for action, securing ourselves with the truth. But the question I want us to answer here and think about is what did Paul mean by truth here? There's two ways that the word can be used. 
It can be truth in the objective sense, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. But also it is used in a subjective sense. That is the idea of living in accordance with the truth. It can refer to a person's character, their honesty, their integrity, their faithfulness. And Paul uses this word in both ways in Ephesians. Back in Ephesians 1.13, he says, After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, there refers to truth in the objective sense, specifically the gospel. Ephesians 4.21, he says, You have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Again, referring to objective truth. But then in Ephesians 4.25, Paul says to speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. There I think he's using truth in the subjective sense, that we are to be honest, that we are to have integrity in our speech. Or again in Ephesians 5.9, Paul says that believers, they are light in the Lord, and the fruit of the light, he says, consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. Again, they're using it in the subjective sense, referring to our behavior. To our character. So what is it here in Ephesians 6.14? What do you think he's referring to? Is it God's objective truth? Or is it my subjective character? And it's an important question we need to ask. Because as we look at the armor here, it's going to affect not only how we see what Paul means here by the, the loins of truth, the belt of truth, but also then what about the breastplate of righteousness? Is that the objective righteousness of Christ or is it the subjective righteousness of the believer? Or what about the shield of faith? Is it the faith or is it my faith? Now, obviously, there's in, these are interconnected in some ways, but it's important that we understand. Do these refer to my ethical behavior or are they referring to something objective outside of myself? Are they something I must pursue or something I already have? Now, anytime we have an interpretive question in Scripture, what do we need to do? Who said go to a commentary? Okay, well, that, that's helpful if it's a good commentary. But first, we can do some investigation on our own by looking at the context, right? So let's think about this letter that Paul's written to the Ephesians. I already mentioned how it was structured overall. The first three chapters focuses on what God has done in our salvation. The last three focus on what we are called to do in response to that salvation. Remember the, the walk commands that I mentioned here that focus on our response. In fact, Paul gives in chapters 4 to 6, 40 imperatives on what we are called to do. 40 commands. Chapters 1 to 3, there was only one command. So there's a clear emphasis in the second half of the letter on our response, on action that we must take. In this final instruction on spiritual warfare, right, those commands, be strengthened, put on the armor, take up the armor, stand firm. These are all actions we must take. So I think... In the context here, it makes sense to see these pieces of armor as primarily focused on our behavior on what you and I need to do. There's another reason I believe that, because look with me at 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's another text where Paul also speaks of a spiritual armor. And in the context here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he's, he's describing those in the world as they are in darkness and that believers are in the light. And then he says this in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, those who sleep, sleep at night. 
referring to those who are in darkness. And those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice here he's describing the behavior of those who are in darkness in contrast to the behavior of those who are in the light. And he even uses this armor metaphor here in this text in order to describe that behavior, our character, our faith, our hope, and our love. And I think Paul's doing a similar thing here in Ephesians 6. Whereas he's talking about, I'm girding myself with truth. It's referring to my need to be faithful to the truth. Our need to be faithful to the truth. To be steadfast. To be committed to the truth. To not give up. Now, we don't do this apart from God's truth. We don't do this apart from God's word. In fact, I can only be steadfast because of the steadfast word of God. I can only be faithful to God's truth because God's truth is faithful. Our steadfast character, our commitment to Christ is rooted in the rock solid character of the word of God and his work in us. So I'm not trying to make a distinction or separate them. They're interrelated. The, the girdle of truth, the first protection that Paul mentions here that we have against the attacks of the enemy is to have the steadfast conviction that it is God's truth that you believe and it is God's truth that you live by. We have to remind ourselves and keep reminding ourselves of that commitment. That's why it's this, this binding up, because if we don't remind ourselves of the commitment that we've made to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of God's word. That that allows for there to be opportunities for attack. First Corinthians fifteen fifty seven says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, in response to the fact that we've been given the victory, it says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So again, there, knowing we have the victory Still, we must be steadfast. We must remain committed. We cannot waver. We cannot give up. Christ did not make it easy to believe. In Mark 8, several times Jesus did this. He would make hard statements, wouldn't he? About the commitment that he requires. Listen again to Mark 8. If anyone wishes to come after me... Just pray a prayer and you're in, buddy. No, he says he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily, which means a willingness, a recognition that I could die. And follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Will find it, will gain it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. This is a hardcore commitment Jesus calls us to. No half-hearted, not temporary arrangement. There's no, you know, it just drives me nuts when I hear... Guys say, just try him out. Try Jesus. No, there is do or do not. There is no try, right? (laughs) Jesus wants all of you for all your life. He wants a full commitment, and that's all that he will accept. 
When he said make disciples, he meant make followers of me. Those who are committed to me all the way until death. I told you about that couple back in March that my wife and I met when we were in Pakistan, right? They were weighing, they wanted to follow Christ, and then they, they said, but we know if we do this, that it will be killed. I met them, by the way, too. Did I tell you that? I saw them when I was there in December, and they'd made a commitment. Um, joy in their faces. It was so encouraging. But they understood the commitment. And it wasn't just, oh, it's only in that country and they face persecution. No, 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 no. <laughs> Any who would be his disciple makes that commitment for Christ, for life, no matter what. Now, it is his grace and his spirit who will sustain us <laughs> to keep that commitment. But we have to remind ourselves of that. And I think that's the idea here behind the, the girdle of truth, the belt of truth about your loins, is you're reminding yourself of that commitment that you made and desire to be faithful to the end. Because to face the onslaught of Satan's attacks, there are going to be those days when we are weakened. There's going to be those days we have doubts. There's going to be those days we might be tempted to, to walk away. We talked about in the equipping hour last week in Hebrews. Where the saints there were facing trials, facing temptations, facing persecution. And some of them were saying, you know what? This isn't what I signed up for. I'm going back to my old life. Right? Oh, in Egypt, the onions and leeks were so good. It's a commitment. Brothers and sisters, have you, have you given up all for Christ? Is your commitment real? You'll know when trouble comes. And that's when you have to remind yourself, I've, I've committed to follow Christ to the end. Tighten up that belt. That I am with Christ no matter what. That I've given my life. Right? Whoever keeps his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake save it. So after girding your loins with truth, with that resolve, that commitment, verse 14, the next piece of armor he talks about is the breastplate of righteousness. I think we have a picture of that here. The breastplate of righteousness. So taking a look at our soldier, after they would put on the belt of truth to bind their clothing around them, they would then put on this breastplate. And we've typically seen this. Uh, Most people think of that large metal plate, plate, you know, you see in the movies or something like that. But that was something only the Roman generals or the emperor would wear. Actually, the common soldier would be wearing the the uh, what's called the Lorica segmentata. And it was made of several strips of armor that were placed over one another, and they were connected together by rivets, by heavy leather straps as well. These metal straps, they wrapped around the, the chest and the back of the soldier. And he would tie them on for the protection of his back and then tie them onto his shoulders for protection there. And I read about how they'd made some modern replicas of this armor and that they actually tested them and found them to be very effective in warding off direct strikes with a sword or a spear or an arrow which kind of made me wonder who they got to test those things. 
No, 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 that one didn't work that time. Uh, But this piece of armor is called the breastplate of righteousness. But again, we have the question here. What righteousness is Paul referring to? Is it the judicial or forensic righteousness seen in Romans 3 where God declares us justified by the blood of Christ? We're no longer guilty. Or is it the imputed righteousness of Christ? That is the the perfect life of Christ as described in Romans 5 that's applied to the believer. Or is Paul speaking here of our righteousness? That is our good deeds, our godly actions. Well, again, it takes us back to what I talked about earlier in the context What's Paul talking about here? And again, in this part of Ephesians, Paul is focusing attention on our response to what God has done in Christ in our salvation. And I think here what Paul is saying is to defend ourselves against Satan devices, you and I must actively pursue righteousness. We must seek to live a godly life. Those of you men that were at Titus 1 this week, Bruce talked about this. In detail, the commitment to pursue holiness, to obey. Now, this is not distinct from Christ's righteousness that he's given to us. In the end, it's only by his righteousness that we can stand. It's only by his righteousness that we can pursue holiness at all, right? It's only because of the spirit who is in us that we can seek to live a godly life. Just like 2 Corinthians 5:21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, which means that any who repent and put their trust in Christ alone are justified, declared not guilty. Christ's righteousness is applied to them at salvation. It's something we have permanently. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us. Here, I think Paul's talking about what Puritans call the imparted righteousness of Christ. The imparted righteousness of Christ is the capacity to do what is right because of what Christ has done in me. You follow me? You still with me? You're not thinking about snowmen, right? And sledding? Okay, so, all right, good. It's this idea expressed in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation for God is at work. So to put on the breastplate of righteousness means to pursue a holy life, to obey. Sort of, you see how it follows that first piece of armor, the commitment, the resolve. What will that resolve lead to then? Obedience, obedience by the grace of God. If we're to stand against the attacks of the devil, we must not only put on the girdle of truth, that is to be committed to a godly life, we must then put on the breastplate of righteousness to actively pursue that godly life. James 4, 7 said, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You catch that? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? There's nothing like a holy life to defend you from Satan's attacks. Matthew 4, Jesus gave us the example, right, of this firm conviction to obey God no matter what. And all of Satan's arrows bounced off of him. How do we put the breastplate on? How do we pursue this godly life? How do we place that breastplate of righteousness upon ourselves? Again, does it magically appear? Is there some prayer we recite and all of a sudden it happens? 
Well, there's a few things we need to remember. To put on the breastplate of righteousness, first recognize your need for Christ's righteousness. Just as I talked about earlier, you can't put the armor of God on until you have on the God of the armor. 1 John 2, 4 says this, The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. You read through the letter, 1 John, you'll see that a Christian is characterized by obedience. Again, not in and of our own power, but it is because Christ is in us that we are able to obey. But we still must take steps to carry that out. Again, it's not passive. And if over the course of your life you don't see a pattern of obedience in your life, then John here says it's likely you don't know him because obedience will be the characteristic of the believer. Notice, not perfect obedience. John himself even said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Paul, even John the Apostle himself admitted to Not being perfect. But there's a progression, right? You've heard that expression. It's not perfection, it's progression. There's this idea of we move in a direction towards and in a habit of obedience. It's the natural fruit of a changed heart, right? Jesus even said that. You'll know them by their fruits. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks, right? So first, to put on the breastplate of righteousness means we need to recognize our need for Christ's righteousness. Secondly, it means to cultivate a love for Christ. What is it Jesus himself said in John 14? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, that, that breastplate is put on as an expression of our love for the one who gave it to us. Keep abiding in Him to cultivate that love and you will naturally be inclined to want to follow Him. Thirdly, to put on the breastplate means you recognize that this obedience comes by God's grace. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has created works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, we don't manufacture our own holiness But as we consistently pray, as we consistently meditate on God's word, as we consistently fellowship with one another, the spirit uses those things to bring about obedience in our lives. And when we fall. We repent, we confess, we take steps to pursue. That's the Christian life right there. It's continually, oh, dent my armor, put it back on. And that happens through repentance, confession. Now, one more thing. We put on the breastplate of righteousness as we are in active fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an aspect of the armor that I don't hear often talked about, but it's an important one. Because as I mentioned earlier, right, the the breastplate of righteousness are these pieces that you had to tie on together. And some of the ties are in the back. How do you think those are going to get tied? Right? I can barely tie my shoes right. Man, I threw something into my back. The armor is treated often as this individual thing that I am responsible for, that it's my armor, that it's something between me and God. But Ephesians, as well as the rest of the New Testament, makes it very clear we are not in this as isolated individuals. We're not going solo here. 
It isn't me and God, it's we and God. And we see that even here in the armor, that this breastplate of righteousness had to be, there needed to be help to put it on. You needed a fellow soldier to come behind you and cinch it up and make sure it's tight. And I don't think I'm overextending the illustration, but we are an army, and an army must be united if it's going to be victorious. Right? Any military strategist will tell you, if you have these isolated individual soldiers off doing their own thing, that's going to fail. And it's no different with us. We're in this together. We need to help one another. And especially in this area of pursuing a holy life, we need to help one another. Just as Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage, that is, come alongside one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you catch what he said there? Come alongside one another. And that could be to exhort or encourage. But come alongside one another so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. Sin grows when it's in the dark. We need each other. As John Piper said, sanctification is a community project. I think he's right. We need one another to help us live a godly life. Again, we're one body. We're not a bunch of fingers and toes and arms and walking about individually. We're connected together. Aren't we? Talk to me now. Aren't we? Are we one body or not? We are. I mean, if you were marching to battle, right? You can imagine yourself in one of these lines of Roman soldiers are marching to battle and you saw a fellow soldier's army was loose or missing, what would you say? What would you do? Well, you know what? That guy's just going to have to learn his lesson. He didn't put his armor on properly. Or would you not want to embarrass him by pointing something out that he didn't do right? Would you just ignore it? I don't have time to help right now. We're in a battle. I don't What would you do? I would think... We would help him out, not only for his sake, but also for ours, right? Because if he goes down, (laughs) that weakens our army. So, brothers and sisters, take this as an encouragement to be involved in one another's lives. Again, you and I are not these individual soldiers worried about our own armor out fighting. We are in this together as one army. One team, one body. You have a responsibility to help the soldier next to you. This isn't about you. It's about those around you. And if they're thinking the same thing, they're going to be watching out for you, right? You will need someone to help you at times, to come alongside you when your commitment is wavering. You'll need someone to exhort you to keep going when it's hard. You'll need someone to encourage you when you are weary. You'll need someone to come alongside and pray for you. You need someone to help point out areas of weakness or sin in your life. We need that. As uncomfortable as it is and as hard as it is to hear, we need that. Hey, brother, sister, your, your breastplate's not on firmly. Let me help you with that. Here's an area in your life. How can I help? 
We need those around us who can show us how to wear the armor. So let's help one another in this battle. Do you commit to do that? I want to give us a moment here just to reflect on these two pieces of armor in closing. Ask yourself, just I'll give you a moment to pray to the Lord on your own. Are you resolved in your commitment to follow Christ? If not, tighten that belt. Are you resolved in your commitment to obey and live a godly life? If not, ask the Lord for direction. Is there someone you could talk to? Someone that can come alongside you? Or if you know of an issue in someone else's life that you need to come alongside them, ask the Lord for direction on that. You know, here in America, I've noticed this going to many countries around the world, just the this idea of community is really a challenge for us. It's not as much of a challenge in most of the world. People understand this. And I, I see it. I witness it. When things happen, I mean, the believers, they just surround one another. Here in the States, not, not so much. So we need to work at this. We have some wonderful strengths that God has given the church in the U.S., but there are some weaknesses that we have. And one of them is this, coming alongside one another, either to confront sin, to encourage, to help, to open up to, to be transparent. We're in a war. We don't have time for pride. We don't have time for embarrassment. We don't have time for laziness. Are you in the battle? Well, let's start and stand firm by putting our armor on. Amen? So I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect on those two things I asked you to consider. Your commitment, your pursuit of godliness, and then I'll close this after that, okay?